0: You're listening to Cross Life, the college ministry of Grace Bible Church in Bozeman, Montana. Our current series is Imago Day, a study of how the character of God impacts your daily life. Yeah, don't be afraid to take somebody's spot. If they're not sitting there, they lost it. Too late. It's your spot now. Good job. Yeah. Come find a seat. Good. Bring it on down front. Lead the way there, Dylan. Start a stream. Get a seat. You guys are too friendly. (laughs) All right, you guys can start finding a seat down front. Lead the way. You might even have to sit by somebody you don't know, which will be a challenge, I know. But it's good for us. Yeah, thank you. Way to go. That's what happens when you sit down late. Oh. Yeah, good job, Dory. You know, it's there's certain advantages to sitting up front. I love that last song so much. I love to sing it out really loud. But uh, my wife and some of you who sit by me know that I don't have a very pretty voice. I make a joyful noise to the Lord, and I sing loud. But if someone's not in front of you, you can sing as loud as you want. No one's offended or throw it off, right? Just Luke, because he's a good singer. It's good to be with you guys tonight. Sunday's Easter. Resurrection Sunday, that's pretty exciting, isn't it? Uh, I, I expect many of you have plans Sunday afternoon after church, but if you don't, uh, my wife Brooke and I in harmony would love it if you would join us at our place afterwards. We're going to have a potluck. Okay, We'll provide the meat and the fixings. Uh, we don't know what it is yet. There's a couple bunnies outside just cut my mic off <laughs> having some Easter bunny stew or something like that but um, if you guys come bring a side dish a salad a dessert whatever it is join us we'll hang out hopefully it'll be nice enough outside we'll eat outside we'll eat in the living room we'll just hang out no timeline no schedule just uh just us hanging out after church so it'll be about 12 30 you can come over as soon as this gets done join us celebrate celebrate the Lord Uh, Does everyone have a handout? If you don't have a handout, why don't you raise your hand and one of our men will get you one. Uh, Who has the handouts by this time? Daniel, Fred, if you guys have an extra handout, why don't you get them? Or uh, Josh, thank you. Josh, grab, keep your hands up if you don't have one. It's not extremely important that you have one. They're not the best handouts. I tried to simplify a little bit this time. Okay, no special formatting. If it helps you, Hallelujah. Praise God. If it doesn't help you, uh, throw it away. Put it off to the side. I don't want it to distract you. I just want it to be an aid or a guide to you to take notes on. And that's more for you to reflect on your own thoughts, your own. Are you making fun of my handout, Nico? Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) If you don't have a handout, you need one, get one. More importantly than having a handout is having a Bible. Okay. I'd like you to get a Bible and there's lots of them in the, in the hymn book holders. Grab one. We're going to work through the text tonight. I want you to turn to Exodus 33 with me. Exodus 33 tonight. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you a story. I love stories, and I love telling stories and laughing about stories. This story isn't that funny of a story. Uh, It's a story about a young boy. And I don't know if any of you have younger brothers. I don't. I was a younger brother. I have two older sisters. And I was an annoying little brother, if you can imagine that. I pestered them, and uh, they came after me they would fight me and they were <laughs> I was an annoying little brother and I was arrogant and uh, I would pester them a lot and this young man this boy in this story was an annoying little brother he had many older brothers this is a uh, story took place in the Middle East actually and uh, he would go to his brothers he would tell his brothers stories about how he was going to uh, take over even though these stories may have been true I don't know that he did it in the best way in fact, he was so annoying, you know, his brothers so deeply that they sold him into slavery, not the sex slave trade we see today, but slavery. It's been going on for thousands of years and it continues today. Uh, his brothers sold him into slavery, if you can believe that. And uh, he was a good slave as far as slaves go. In fact, he rose in importance and he was put in charge of a lot. In fact, he did so well that they put him in charge of the king's uh, stuff and he rose up in the royal family, and he did very well. And years later, his brothers came back. And his brothers didn't know it was him, but he saw his brothers. And his brother, he disguised himself. His brothers didn't know it was him. And uh, he was afraid that just like they'd tried to kill him or sell him into slavery, they'd sold his younger brother into slavery who wasn't with him. He recognized him, and he wept over it. And to make a long, long story short, he ended up reconciling with his brothers. That family did very, very well in the region, in the country under the kingdom, and they populated and filled the land. That son, that boy had a name, and his name was Joseph. And that king had a title, and his title was Pharaoh. And that place was Egypt. And this took place thousands and thousands of years ago. I'm talking about the nation of Israel started by a small boy whom God chose to bless and multiply. And this family got so big, Israel got so big that a new Pharaoh rose up and he oppressed them. He put them into slavery and uh, bad slavery. Many, many of them in slavery. God raised up a young man named Moses. Pharaoh ordered all the firstborns killed. Moses was saved. Uh, Moses ended up fleeing. God brought him back. And Moses, as you know, Delivered the people out of Egypt, didn't he? In fact, God sent plagues, and the last plague that He sent was what we celebrate tomorrow in Passover. Now, okay, they smeared the blood over the uh, doorpost so that uh, the death would pass by their house, passing over their household. That was the final straw that broke Pharaoh's back and he let them go and they fled. You know the story, they pursued him through the Red Sea and they went where? To Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai. That's the first place they went. And that's where we find ourselves in Exodus 33. Exodus 33, still at Mount Sinai, Moses and the people. I want you to pick up with me in verse 20. Before this, Moses asked God a very pointed question. He says, God, can I see your glory? I want to see your glory. Look at how God responds. Uh, This is God speaking. He says, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me. You shall stand there on the rock and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So this says, Moses, you can see my backside as I pass by, but if you see my face, if you see my glory in full, it's gonna kill you, okay? Big stuff. And this is where your sheep picks up. First five verses, we look at the gracious renewal, the gracious renewal. Why don't you read Exodus, uh, follow along as I read Exodus 34, 1 through 10. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were the former tablets, that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up to the mountain to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And what do you know? Moses rose early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and he took two stone tablets in his hand. What happens next? The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers and children on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste to bow low forward, onto the earth in worship. He said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. This is God's word. This is what we're gonna learn from tonight. Why not you pray with me? God, we need your help. Make this book live to us. As we sang in the song, smile upon us, Lord, smile upon your text, enlighten it before our eyes, help us to know, to hear, to read, to learn, to understand, and not just be hearers, Lord, but doers. We ask in Jesus' name and by his power, amen. Verse 1 says, now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I'll write on the tablets the words which were on the former tablets which you shattered. Former tablets. What former tablets? Well, if you know the story of Exodus, you know this isn't the first time uh, Moses has been up there. He's up there before. In fact, in Exodus 19, we find Moses on Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up and he hears the commandments and he hears the law. He's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, hearing from the Lord, fasting and praying. And what happens when he gets back? Freak show, carnival, chaos, sin. The golden calf. People thought he wasn't coming back, so they told Aaron, Hey, we're gonna make a god. Let's make a god. They make a golden calf. The people begin to worship it. Moses comes back down the mountain. He starts to hear singing and rejoicing, and he gets back and he shatters the tablets as a symbol that they have broken God's law and his covenants and his commandments. He shatters the tablets. Many of the Israelites are killed. But Moses makes intercession for them. He pleads on behalf of Israel Lord, don't wipe them all out, spare some, give us another chance, Lord. And that's where we find ourselves. The intercession of Moses, and he says, I'm going to write again with the finger of God on these stone tablets. So Moses comes with two new tablets in the morning to renew the covenant. This is a gracious renewal. God didn't have to do this. And I tell you all this. I tell you the background of Israel. I tell you about Moses because I want you to see some oomph in this. I want you to see the support. Moses isn't just going up the first time. He's seen God. He's been with God. Um, the, the the mountain has been trembling and shaking and been in fire and smoke. This isn't the first time he goes up. This is one of the most profound and important statements about God in all of scripture that we're about to look at. Your mind and your heart need this text, brother and sister, and my mind and my heart, we need this text. We need to understand this. This is God's self-revelation. Look at verse two. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. He says again, no man should come up with you nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may graze in front of that mountain. I don't know about you. I've had some sleepless nights in my life. Um, I can think of a couple. I didn't sleep very good before my wedding. I didn't sleep very good before Cat Grizz my senior year. I didn't sleep. There's just a few. But if I was to guess, I would guess that this is a pretty sleepless night for Moses, right? He's going up to the mountain alone. There's not even going to be sheep on the mountain to watch, he is entirely alone. He's entirely apart. And even though Moses has done this before, it's a frightening thing. It's a terrifying thing in a way to come before the Lord, especially when God has told him, if you see me in full, you'll die. No man has seen me. No man has seen my glory, but I'll let you see my backside. But he knows the only thing more terrifying than seeing God and being with God is disobeying God. So he goes, he cut out two stone tablets like the former one. Look at verse four. And Moses rose early in the morning and he went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. Verse five, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Now it's tough to even put words together to try and describe what's going on. I think some of your translations, uh, a little better translation, it says this, the Lord came down in a cloud, stood there with him and called out his own name, Yahweh. What happens? God shows up and he says, Yahweh. Moses doesn't say this, God does. God shows up and boom, God is here. Who? God. Not some idol made with hands, not some figment of the imagination, but God the God of the universe, the star breather, has showed up in person. And I'm guessing that Moses wasn't giggling. I don't know what kind of emotions were going through his mind, what he was feeling, what it was like, but I'm guessing he wasn't giggling. This was a serious time. It does remind me of a similar situation in Scripture. In Matthew 17, we find Moses again. In the New Testament, yep, in the New Testament. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Jesus takes... Uh, James and John and I think Peter, yeah, Peter he takes them up on the mountain and they see Christ transfigured before him and they see Moses and Elijah. And you remember what Peter says? They stuttering. Peter's the one who's always talking Peter he just doesn't know what to say. Christ is transfigured and he sees Christ in his glory and all Peter can stammer out and say is Lord it's good that we're here good that we're here. It's right Peter, it is good you're there. And I think it's good that Moses is there and I bet he's feeling like that right now. It is good that I am here. It's good that we're here. And he had been here before in chapter 19 as I mentioned the whole mountain's quaking and trembling but never like this. He asked God to see his glory and he's never been in a situation, a circumstance with God just like this. So we can only speculate the range of emotion that he's feeling from awe to wonder to bewilderment bewilderment, to exposure. But you can imagine, or at least you can try to imagine what's going on here. Suffice it to say his experiences before with God hadn't dulled, they hadn't dimmed, they hadn't overshadowed this real fear and awesomeness of being with God, the God, the triune God of the universe, even beholding the back of God's glory. And we do know indeed that Moses was glowing as a result of this. In fact, if you're in 34, turn over to the same chapter, 34, but look at verse 29. 34:29. 29. <clears throat> Moses comes back after his time up on the mountain. It says this, When it came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of testimony were in Moses' hand, and he was coming down from the mountain, That Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he was speaking with him. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to him and Aaron and the rulers in the congregation returned to him and Moses spoke to him. Moses is shining. He's glowing because of the glory of God. What a wonderful thing. What a beautiful thing. Next we have the awesome revelation of God. The awesome revelation of God, verse 6. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed this. Again, it's God speaking. What does God say about himself? What does Yahweh say about himself? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. What a self-revelation. God clearly and succinctly describes what he is like. Nothing is more clear and awesome than God giving us a self-description of what God is like. God could have said a number of things, could have filled the pages of Scripture with description, but what he chose to give us is what we have here today, and it's a treasure. Because it's God talking about who he is. It's one of the most clear and powerful self descriptions in all of Scripture. And it's difficult to do much more than to read it over and over and to look at it and wonder and worship our God. But we'll try and go through this. Compassion. First thing he says about himself is he's compassionate means God shows his sensitive kindness and forbearing love to those who are in desperate need and those who haven't seen it. Okay, the very word, the idea of the word shows that there's an offended party and one party has to have patience and restraint with the receiving party. This is mercy. The word translated compassion could be mercy. He refers to loving kindness. It refers to loving kindness, tenderness, the compassion of God, Towards even the most miserable and pitiful of his creatures. If there is any further doubt, Old Testament or New, God's not shy about revealing this in the pages of Scripture. James 5.11 says the Lord, uh, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Full of compassion and mercy. Ephesians 2:4 says, He is the God who is rich. He's rich. He's full in mercy. Second Corinthians 1:3 calls God the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who Comforts us in our affliction. What a description of God, the God of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. This is the God we learn about. This is the God we read about, the God we talk about. God, compassionate, the God of compassion and mercy. Psalm 86 5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Do you know this God? Is this the God that you know in Scripture? Is he a figment of your imagination? Do you know a God who is merciful, compassionate, and gracious? Or is all that is in your head about God an overbearing ruler who takes out his rod of correction and is quick to slap you with it? Do you know this God of mercy and graciousness and compassion? Second thing he says about himself is he's gracious. The perfect and supreme example of graciousness. That is, unmerited favor or unearned pleasurable circumstances and attitude. God is a God of grace. I was looking through a book about the attributes of God. Uh, The writer described as this God's willingness to treat his creatures not according to their own merit or worth, but according to his own kindness and generosity. God is a God of gracious generosity. As you well know, that grace measures out in many areas of a sinner's life. Sanctifying, calling, saving, securing. God is a God of grace and there's much, there's much that could be said about this. And God does say much about this. Scripture's not shy about using this term. God is not shy about using this term. In fact, First Peter 5.10 says that God is the God of all grace. Is the God of all grace. It's a fitting and appropriate title. He is the God of all grace. Do you ever wonder how God thinks about giving this grace out? What does he think about, how does he, how does he feel about displaying his grace, giving his grace out? I'll tell you, there's a picture in my mind, um, before I knew much about God that used to come to mind It's this, you know what? You know what wonder bread is good for? Just that white plain stuff that you can crinkle up into like a ball that big. You, you know what I'm talking about? It's the kind we all ate when we were four with the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Okay. What, what is that kind of bread good for? Feeding ducks. Isn't that what you do with that kind of bread? Okay, that's all we ever did with it is we broke it up into pieces and fed ducks. Now, don't if you've ever fed ducks or swans or geese before. Uh, But if you're even remotely afraid of birds like my wife is, it is a terrifying thing. (laughs) Okay, because they'll come up and peck at your shoe. And you're just flinging bread everywhere, trying to throw it in the corner to get them away from you. And I'll crank it up and I'll throw them at them to try and get them away. Or I'll do this, I'll tear them into really small pieces because there's so many stinking ducks on campus. We used to do this, tear them into a thousand pieces and try and give one to everyone, right? Then you lose track and you can't tell who they are. And this is a crude illustration, but this is how I used to think about God giving out His grace. Uh, Yeah, I'll give it to that one. I'll throw it way over there and make them go get it. Or I'll tear it up into a million pieces so they only get a little bit. And I'll be pretty frivolous with it. I'll be pretty stingy with this grace. Do you know what Scripture says about God? Isaiah thirty. Verse 18 says this, listen carefully. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion or mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Do you know this about God? This was a scripture I, I found this week. It's not like I'd never read it before. I turned to it and it was highlighted. But I thought, this is really something. The Lord longs to be gracious to you and therefore he waits on high to have compassion or mercy on you. He longs or waits to give grace. He's not breaking it into small pieces and throwing it here and there. God is a God of grace. He's not divvying it out stingently. He doesn't sit arms crossed, caustically looking down. He's not stingy with His grace. Let me read you something. This is from the Gospel Primer, the Gospel Primer by Milton Vincent. I want to ask the question. The the text doesn't ask it, but I want to ask this. How saved are you? If you're here tonight, I don't know if you know Jesus, to be real honest. I I recognize there's uh, some in here, many in here who do, but there's probably some in here who don't as well. If you are saved, this is for you. If you aren't saved, This will probably make you jealous. And maybe that's a good thing. Listen to this as I read it. In justifying me, this is a writer talking about God's justification in him. In justifying me, God declared me innocent of my sins and pronounced me righteous with the very righteousness of Jesus. God also allowed his future and present wrath against me to be completely propitiated by Jesus who bore it upon himself while on the cross. Consequently, God has now only love, compassion, and deepest affection for me. And this love is without any admixture of wrath whatsoever. God always looks upon me and treats me without or with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me, even through trials. Because I am a justified one, He subjugates every trial and forces it to do good toward me. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more. And He graciously maintains my justified status as described above. When I sin, God feels no wrath in His heart against me. End quote. That's really something, isn't it? No admixture of wrath whatsoever for a justified Christian. Do you know Him? Is that true of you? Boy, if it's not, I would want it to be. If it's not, God's wrath abides over you. If it is true, his wrath has been propitiated text also says, God also says about himself that he is slow to anger or long suffering. It's my opinion that this is one of the most overlooked and underappreciated attributes of God. I love to think about the slowness of anger for God. God is long suffering. He suffers long over his creatures. In fact, if you think about it, if God was not long suffering, my daughter would not be here. God could have cut her off. I don't mean to be crude or vulgar, but the reality is, is that my daughter has already sinned. Many, many times, I assure you. In fact, she was born that way. And God, if God was not gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, my daughter would not still be here. And the implication clearly is you would not be here. You wouldn't have made it to breakfast this morning, neither would have I. But God is merciful, he's compassionate, and he's slow to anger, he's slow to anger. God doesn't have a hair trigger. Okay, it's not every time you mess up, it's not, oh, I messed up, bang, he's got you. God doesn't have a hair trigger, he's slow to anger. If that were the case, the Israelites would be like the cud people. Who's the cud people? Exactly. They're not around anymore. Okay, the Israelites wouldn't have made it. God would have cut them off. Some of you were looking at me like, cherry the people. Moses wouldn't have been here. Harmony wouldn't have been here. You wouldn't have been here. And I wouldn't have been here. God is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. But Psalm seven eleven through 12 says this, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation or righteous anger every single day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He's bent his bow and he's made it ready. God is a God who is angry with the wicked every day. All of God's character makes more sense. It's an intensified against the backdrop of who God is. Okay, it's easy to have a small view of God. You just don't learn about Him. You only learn about one thing of God and walk away with a small view of God. You got a truncated form of God. And it's probably not the God of the Bible. When we view these attributes against the backdrop of what we've been learning, what we've been talking about, what we know of God, it's full. It's true. It's real. That's why if you're a casual attender at Cross Life or a casual attender at church or if you're not in the Word consistently, you probably have a small view of God. And just like I believe Tozer says in his book, a thousand smaller problems could be solved with a true and proper view of God. Who is this God? God has every reason to be angry. And His anger is a holy hatred, not just for sin, but for Sinners. God is angry with the wicked every day. But it is this forbearance and long-suffering that Romans 2.4 tells us leads men and women to repentance. It's his suffering long over them, him being patient with them. When someone realizes, listen, when someone realizes the manifestation of God's kindness is simply letting them live a little while longer before cutting them off, it has a magnanimous impact on, who, on the character of God in their life. The way you think about God, if you realize his kindness, is just letting you live, letting you go on. This truth is repeated in Numbers 14, 18, Nehemiah 9, 17, Psalm 86, 15, 103, 8, 145, 8, Joel 2, 13, Jonah 4, 2, Nahum 1, 3. What's that demonstrate? Demonstrates its importance, its loveliness, and its truthfulness. God is slow to anger. That's a good word. That's good news for you and I. When you realize, listen, when you realize the Bible's compass points true north towards damnation for every soul apart from God's grace and kindness and mercy, it intensifies his mercy. It intensifies his grace. The grace of God seems more satisfactory and his slowness to anger becomes a precious truth indeed. What a wonderful thing. What a good thing this God is slow to anger our God is slow to anger if you think about family members as I often do pray for aunts or uncles or whoever it is in your family you realize simply the fact that God has let them live through diseases through struggles through difficulties if they're your grandparents it's a long time he has given them time to choose him to follow him abounding in loving kindness and truth is the next thing we read this should put air under your wings as a believer shouldn't it If you're discouraged, if you're disappointed, you read that God is abounding in loving kindness and truth, that's a good thing. That's like someone blowing air under you, lifting you up. It still amazes me. It still amazes me. I don't know if it should, but it still amazes me after years as a believer that someone could still spurn the loving kindness of God and despise and blaspheme when his grace and mercy is offered freely. What a God we serve! What a wonderful God! This word makes me think of Lamentations 3, where I see in the midst of what is one of the most heavy and discouraging portions of the Bible, we find fresh hope and a true testimony of God. Jeremiah is looking over the city of Israel, excuse me, of Jerusalem, and the city's been crushed. It's been capsized. It's been destroyed. And the people have been exported into slavery. And he looks over the ruins and the people and the death, and he mourns. That's what lament means, lamentations. That's what the book is about. But listen to this. In the midst of the book, Lamentations 3, 19, 20, I'll read it to you. It says this, or 19 through 24, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness that is experiencing. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. Boy, what a good thing to remember in the midst of suffering. Amen. My Bible commentary says about this term, this word, it says this Hebrew word is used about 250 times in the New Testament, or excuse me, in the Old Testament. It refers to God's gracious love. Listen, it's a comprehensive term that encompasses love, grace, mercy, goodness, forgiveness, truth, compassion, faithfulness. It's like you put these wonderful qualities of God and shake them up in a bag and you come out with this ball of loving kindness. This is what the word means. It's difficult to even explain or translate. The loving kindness of God, it's a comprehensive term, abounding, overflowing, not extinguished. It's like a fountain that sources unaltered or unhindered. The truth of God abounds and abounds and abounds and this loving kindness of God never shows signs of exhaustion or fatigue or running out. No, no. Not this God, not the God of the word, not the God of the Bible. Micah 7, 18 through 19 says this. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Same word, loving kindness. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Are you listening that is good news. Good news. Finally we see that he's abounding in truth. He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. All that God is, he is in truth. He is in its fullness. He is all these thirds, not he is all these things, not in word or proclamation only but in fullness and in truth, in reality. God is great and real truth, not the least of which, not any of which is relative. God is absolute. He is absolute truth. He is true and real in its most full sense. What God is, he is in truth. Look at verse seven with me. It says, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. This God keeps loving kindness for thousands. The idea is generations. He keeps his loving kindness for how long? Forever. For thousands of generations. Thousands. Infinite He uses all three nouns. Look at the passage. He uses all three nouns describing the idea of sin as if there was any question that God can't pardon. Iniquity, transgression, sin. Listen, anything that you've ever done, thought, said can be forgiven. The most heinous crime or perverse thought that could have ever entered your head, mind, that you executed or didn't execute, God can and will forgive in this. He will offer forgiveness towards it should you turn to him in faith and repentance. Whatever you've done, whatever you've thought, it can be forgiven. This mercy and this grace, it's unhindered. But it is, listen, it is complemented, not conquered, but complemented by this sober reality in the second half of verse seven. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations here again, God graciously reminds us: this character is full and robust, and it does not lack justice. Rather than sin, uh, the guilty, or rather, sin and the guilty will receive their due penalty. God will give to people what they deserve, unless they turn to Christ. He has given Christ what you deserve, sinner. If you turn to Him. These attributes do not check each other or stand at at odds against one another, but they give weight and strength and support to one another. You notice how many passages I was reading about grace and mercy include the idea of justice with God? They're complementary. We see them again and again in Scripture. And this is where so many fall off the boat, isn't it? This is where we lose so many willing to bask in God's grace and mercy, not properly understanding that his mercy and grace do not compromise his justice. They cannot, they should not, and they will not. This isn't bad news, but it's good news. Listen, this is good news. Proverbs 17, 15 says this, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. You can't justify wicked and condemn the righteous. That's unjust. God can't do that. Can you imagine a human judge who was about to have a rapist on trial and he just said, ah, forget about it. That would not be just. That would not be good. That would not be true. That would not be fair. Can we expect anything less from God when we are murderers at heart and adulterers at heart? (coughs) Deep inside, we all regard and hope for justice, don't we? We all deeply want justice. (laughs) We seem to remind ourselves too often. this justice. Uh, we forget that this justice demands our blood. It demands blood. Hebrews nine twenty two says, "There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood." This justice demands blood, and it's either Christ's or it's yours. Nahum one three says, "The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, but he will by no means he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished." God will punish. He is just. He will repay. Listen, I was sent a story yesterday about former New York mayor, Mark Bloomberg. Some of you might've read this or saw this, but I looked up a little bit fuller context on the article. I'm gonna quote to you just straight from the New York Times yesterday. New York Times wrote this. I'm just gonna read it to you. It says this. Mr. Bloomberg was introspective as he spoke and he seemed both restless and wistful when he sat down for the interview. It was a few days before his 50th college reunion. His mortality had started dawning on him at age 72, and he admitted he was a bit taken aback by how many of his former classmates had been appearing in the memoriam memoriam pages of a school newspaper. It's a sobering thing, isn't it? When people your own age begin to die and pass. (laughs) But if he senses that he may not have much time left as he would like, He has little doubt about what would await him at Judgment Day. Listen to this. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he says with a grin, I tell you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. End quote. Mr. Bloomberg tragically, tragically underestimates the justice of God. He dismisses it completely. What a tragedy. Do you know? Do you understand? Do your friends understand the justice of God? God must punish sin. You ever read across this statement, third and fourth generation, and wonder what it is, what it means? I did for a long time. I thought, does that mean dad's sin is on me and, my, and harmony and everybody else? Well, Deuteronomy twenty four sixteen makes it pretty clear that children, are, they're not punished for their parents' sins. So what's the rub here? okay sin is never private as private as you may think your sin is sin is never private sin affects not only your children but often a parent's grandchildren god's not holding other people responsible for other people's sins but he is noting that the chain is usually not broken if my dad does something if he inflicts in me a habit a sin tendency that's probably going to stick And in fact, it's probably going to stick with my grandchildren and follow them on down the line. This can be broken. It is broken by repentance and faith. But the tragic analysis is this. Proverbs 22, 6, where it says, raise a child up in the ways uh, that he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from them. It goes both ways. Whether or not you like it, you raise a child up And if you don't instruct him in the way he should go, if you don't instruct him in godliness, he will follow away. And so your sin does affect others. It does have consequences. If God is all these things, all these things we've talked about so far, then he is perfectly, fully, and unchangeably all these things. Is this the God you know and worship? I ask you seriously tonight. Is this the God you know? Is this the God you worship? Well, we come to the proper response, really the only reasonable response. What else could Moses do? Look at verse 8. Moses made haste. He hurried up to bow low towards the earth and worship. Now we've learned from God about God, and we learned from Moses about man. This is the only proper response after seeing and hearing and understanding this. Moses makes haste to bow low to the earth and worship. It's only a reasonable response. This, friends, is the end of the knowledge of the holy. This is what knowing and understanding God promotes, worship. Adoration. This is where the image of God takes us. Low in humility and high in worship. High in worship. But worship worship cannot happen if God does not pardon sin. And Moses makes that clear in the next verse. He said, now, if I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate. Pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. What a good prayer, huh? What a good prayer petition to the Lord and a good thing for us to pray. Lord, pardon my iniquity and sin. Take us as your own possession. Take me as your own possession. The question is, how can he do this? How can God pardon sin? You ever thought about that? Can God just say, eh, nah, no big deal. He can't. We established that earlier. God is just. In fact, Habakkuk chapter one, verse 13, makes it clear that God can't even look on wickedness. He is too holy. Fact is, you cannot worship God. Listen, you cannot worship God if you don't have an intercessor. And if Christ is not your intercessor, you have no intercessor. Hebrews 4 talks about how Christ stands in our stead. He is the great intercessor. How is this access to us? How is God's grace and mercy pardoning our sin? How can he do it? This is how. He saves us because of Christ, because of what Christ has done at the cross, because of the great exchange we see in Scripture. We read, you know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, don't you? It's one of the first verses you memorize, and for good reason. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace, not by works that no man can boast. And yeah, nothing, you and I, if we're believers, Christian, have nothing to boast about. We're saved by grace. I know you know that one, but I want you to turn with me to 2 Timothy 1. nine. 2 Timothy 1. nine. I love this passage and I think you'll love it too when we look at it and understand it together. 2 Timothy's way at the back of your Bible with all the T's, Thessalonians, Titus, Timothy. 2 Timothy one nine. right at the beginning, Paul says this, he's in the Timothy. He says, uh, who has saved, so he's talking about God here, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose, And grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. How did God grant us grace? How does God show us mercy? He grants it to us in Christ Jesus. That's how he shows us his grace. That's how his grace and mercy are demonstrated towards us. Did you notice what it says? From all eternity. Listen, do you think God knew that Israel was going to rebel again? Of course he did. And we see the cycle over and over and over again in scripture. Do you think Moses knew? Moses knew. If Moses knew, God knew. God knows all things. I don't know what Moses was expecting, but when he came down from that mountain, I don't think it would have been putting it past him for him to expect another banal circus of sin and immorality and rebellion. He knows people. He knows himself. Moses knew Is Christ the backup plan? No. Christ was always the plan from all eternity. (coughs) From all eternity past, this was the plan. Christ wasn't the backup plan in case the law didn't work. Let me show you this in Scripture. Let's try to wrap things together a bit here. Turn with me to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I want you to go to John chapter 1. Those beautiful parts of Scripture. I don't know if that's fair to say. I know I say that about a lot of scripture, but this is just wonderful to look at and work through. John chapter one. And I want this to put I want this to put a compass on everything that we've talked about this. I want this to encircle and help you realize what's happened as we work through Exodus thirty four. John one, look at me with at verse fourteen. John spends a lot of time talking about this word and then verse 14 he tells us plainly who is this word the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory as of the only begotten from the father who is this Jesus and what does it say about him the only begotten from the father full of what grace and truth does that sound familiar to you Full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John, this is John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, who comes after me and has a higher rank than I. He existed before me. Do you know John was born first? How does John say that? From all of eternity, Christ has existed. He was and is and is to come. This isn't a mistake. This isn't plan B. Look at verse 16. For of his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, abounding grace, overflowing grace. Verse 17, watch this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Moses goes up on the mountain and the finger of God writes on the tablets the law. And the word tells us the law came in to reveal sin, to point it out as a tutor, to point you to Christ, to point me to Christ, to expose your sin, And chances are some of you need the law tonight. You need to hold your life up against the law and realize that you've offended a holy God, that you've not lived up to his commandments, and that Moses rightly could break the 10 commandments before your feet too. And the only way to God is through the grace and the mercy shown us in Christ Jesus. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through who? Jesus Christ. What a beautiful truth. Amen. 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 This is a good thing. See, you don't have to search. You don't have to look for that mountaintop experience. You're not going up on Mount Sinai anytime soon and you don't need it. Do you want to see what God's like? Do you want to see what he's like? Look at the sun. Look at Christ. Read the scriptures. Read the gospels. Look, find and see Christ. Find God the one full of grace and truth. Look to Jesus. Jesus is God and from his fullness of grace we have all received. Remember the parable of the prodigal son? This is the God who runs. He runs to you. He runs to you. You ought to run to him. Let your reason return to you. Stop eating pig slop. Stop eating the same thing that the world eats. Stop enjoying the same silly stuff the world enjoys. Have a sound mind. Turn to Christ. Turn to God. And what does God do? He runs to you. He shows his grace and mercy towards you in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thing. Isaiah fifty-five seven shows us this picture of repentance. It says this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to God and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly Pardon. God will have compassion on him. So what's our response? This is a Mago day, isn't it? This is the image of God, and we're called to reflect it. Our response is simple, but it's not easy. It's obvious, but it won't come to you without work. Luke six, thirty five and thirty six But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the most high, for he himself is is kind to ungrateful and evil men. And do you see what it says? Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Could it be any more obvious? What are you called to do? You're called to be merciful just as your father is merciful. Are you a merciful person? If you lend something to somebody, what do you expect in return? Are you likely to go to them and beat them down verbally, intellectually, emotionally, emotionally? Or do you show them mercy and compassion? I know that people have offended you. You and I live in a sin-cursed world. Do you show them mercy? Do you show them compassion? Or do you come to them and are you stiff and angry with them? All this because of an annoying little brother some thousands of years ago named Joseph? No. No, all this because the marvelous triune God of the scriptures. We've studied him. We've saw him, seen him. We've looked at him. We've seen him in the scriptures. Now the question is, are you going to see it through? Are you going to be an image bearer? You will be an Im- image bearer. Will you imago yourself or will you imago day? Will you image God? Colossians 3.10 has this to say, Having put on the new self who is being renewed in true knowledge according to what? The image of the one who created him. Have you put on a new image? Have you put on a new likeness? This series isn't an end. We've come to the close and we've studied the God of the Bible. And our prayer is that you would love him more deeply. That you would follow him more fully. That you would model him more accurately if you've been here for any amount of time, we pray that by now you know and believe what has been taught about God, this sovereign, holy, good, and severe God. He is just, loving, faithful, true. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible and eternal. The triune God is wise, self-sufficient, self-existent, and it's our prayer that you'd spend the rest of your school year, the rest of your summer, and the rest of your life bowed before this God in humble submission, drawing near to God, drawing near to him to find grace and help in time of need. Let's pray. God, it's you we want. It's you we need. It's you we look to. right our image of you. I repent. We repent collectively of any wrong view of you. And we want to grow in our view of you. We want to grow in our understanding of you. We want knowledge of the Holy One. And you have given it in your word. Remind us of it often. Drill it into our lives through repetition, through discipline, through your grace, through your mercy, and through your compassion. We ask this only through the precious name of your wonderful Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Cross Life. Feel free to share this recording with others, but please do not charge for it or alter the contents in any way. For more recordings or other information about Grace Bible Church, visit gbcmt.org.